Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are legendary sports and NFL expert Greg Cosell, senior producer at NFL Films, and Mississippi gubernatorial candidate Brandon Presley. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper and Hold On Bags, in the show notes. We really thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, I had my expectations for the State of the Union were somewhere between minimal and a little modest. Uh, the entire exercise really seems kind of passe, and President Biden is not an electrifying or inspiring speaker. I was wrong. It was an electrifying evening, a 10 for Biden. He was energetic, focused, credibly said State of the Union is strong, lowest unemployment, more than 50 years, inflation ebbing, record number of Americans with health insurance. I mean, with last year's legislation, there's going to be a trillion dollars in investments ahead, a lot for blue-collar jobs. And he, he focused on all the right things ahead, lower health care costs, more support for children and the like. And said billionaires shouldn't be paying a lower tax rate than school teachers. James, you can run on that anywhere in America. I mean, I don't, I don't know any place where, where that would be anything but a winner. And he didn't look 80. But his success also had a critical co-pilot, the rowdy, rude, boorish Republican caucus, yelling liar, bullshit, and other such niceties. It made the president look so good you could see the angst on Speaker McCarthy's face in the rostrum. And then in the greatest trap, the greatest trap, since Michael Corleone set up Senator Gary and the Godfather, he said some Republicans want to cut Social Security or even sunset it, which, of course, some did, looking at you, Rick Scott. But that enraged the crazies. They got up and yelled and screamed. And he said, OK, you know, then we'll take Social Security and Medicare off the table. And they all cheered. So it's off the table for budget negotiations. And boy, does that put him in a bind. What a triumph. Yeah, I, I, but I guess its impact will be in infamous words of Warden Norton and the Sawshank Redemption of Fort in the Wind. You know, I, it should, if anybody paid attention to it, it, it would consolidate what's happened in America in the last two years and what's happened in the Republican Party. And I hope I'm wrong, but I'm, again, I think we're looking at a political fort in the wind. Oh, I think not. I think not, not, not so much because of Biden, because of the Republicans. I think they showed their colors. Uh, and yeah, you kind of knew it ahead of time, but it was so obnoxious last night. And I think that was, I think people's, I don't I hope know. I hope you're right. I, you I, know, I, 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 I think their rudeness and immaturity. Look, I, if you ask me, I, I think that the balloon was an IQ test. Okay. And when, when you're trying to shoot a balloon down, that's 11 and a third miles in the air. You're going to be rude and stupid just like they were last night. But we should have known from the balloon that nothing was good was going to happen. Well, I would, you know, I, I'm no Biden sycophant, as you know, but I thought he handled the balloon 
almost perfectly. He had the wisdom to wait and the measure, you know, he, he got the best option, ordered a shot down on F-22 over the Atlantic Ocean, recovered important intelligence. It's Beijing and Xi Jinping who suffered a big embarrassment here, not as Mike Gallagher and Marco Rubio uh, charged America. Yeah. I, I, look, I, I agree. I'm just saying that the balloon just demonstrated how many stupid people we have in this country. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But of course, I don't have any problem with the way you handled it. And I mean, the idea that you're going to take a, 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 a AR-15 and shoot something 11 miles in the sky is absurd. And I don't think these people took seventh grade physics because you, they would know whatever goes up has to come down. The bullet's coming down. You don't know where. Understand? I mean, but it was just, it, it was so profoundly stupid on their part, and it was so universal on their part that, that you couldn't believe it. And I, 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 I hope I'm wrong, but it, it just demonstrates how hopelessly stupid 40 percent of this country is. Well, you know, I agree with that. Um, yeah, James, let me ask you a question, you know, and, and try to give me a serious answer. Do you think there's any chance that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a Democratic mole? <laughs> you know, in, in a Normally, you would sort of think that, that no one could be that idiotic, that stupid, that counterproductive, that rude. Uh, but then you go back and you look at the video of her chasing David Hogg, you know, one of the kids from Parkland. And you say, she is that stupid. She is that rude. She is that idiotic. She is that uh, unclassic, common. She's not even common. She's worse than that. And I, I actually think that that's who she is. Yeah. No, I, don't I, think I, she's, I, I, I I'd like to think that the Democrats were smart enough to make her a mole, but I don't think we had to. <laughs> and she's I'll tell you something. I like that competition, but but her and Lauren Bobin. Oh, wow. And, and understand mean, every time they do that, that they get a text from their their section fundraising said we just racked up a million seven in contributions yeah. well i'll tell you only a cut above the dnc should have bought time for arkansas governor sarah huckabee sanders i only watched part of it but her rebuttal last night she raised such critical issues facing the country as to whether democrats can define a woman uh, it was as 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 low grade a a substantive speech as could possibly be imagined. These are never easy rebuttals to the State of the Union, uh, and she managed to lower the bar even further. Somebody told me she was worse than gender was, which is pretty hard. Well, I, I, you, that's a really good point, James, because that is the test. I think she got the Bobby Jindal Award. I think it'd be a close competition. Yeah, it's kind of like Bobert against uh, against Green. You know, I'm, I'm 78. I, I just can't, I, I can't watch. I, it did. You know, I, I can watch excerpts, and she's a, I know her a little bit. She's a nice lady. No one ever, ever confuse her with, you know, being having Bill Clinton's brain. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, I, I know another reason you didn't watch it, James, because you're tired. Why are you tired? You have a new grandson. You want to tell us just a little bit about... Liam, before we uh, before we move on, a little bit of an upbeat note. Yeah, on uh, on two three twenty three at eight oh six p.m. coming mm. in this earth weighing eight pounds and six ounces uh, at Ashna 
Hospital on O'Neill Lane in Baton Rouge, young Mr. Liam Campbell Carville Joel came into this world. And I'm generally uh, like traditional, but Liam, it, my brother, deceased brother's name was William. And the, Sam, my, my son-in-law's favorite uncle's name, William, and Liam is William for Irish. So I love his William, name. Right. right. And he's, uh, we had a, a difficult delivery and we had a few little moments of concern there, but everything is A-okay. And I've already gone and got his Mardi Gras little uniform here, you know, because he's coming down to see his, see his first Mardi Gras parade. And uh, I guess it was the 24th of two weeks. James, at eight pounds, six ounces, he's a, he's a potential future Tiger linebacker. He might be at that. We're coming in at that. Yeah. And, and of course, I'm, I'm actually going to go to Baton Rouge and watch the Super Bowl with him. Because when you're 78, you don't know how many Super Bowls you're going to get to watch with your grandson. So if, oh, wow. I'm sure he's pretty unaware. But <laughs> at any rate, I got, I got to go get my fix of Liam. <laughs> Terrific. Congratulations. And, Thank you know, you. congratulations to you and to Maddie and to Mary. And, uh, you know, we're just so happy. He's already for got you. 50 books in his library. <laughs> I'll tell you, <laughs> there's nothing better than grandfatherhood. My friend Michael yeah. Gardner said one time, it's like renting a high-end Mercedes. It's a, it's a magnificent drive, and you get to return it at night. So it's, you're going you're gonna to have many years of enjoyment of this. There you go. Our guest is the smartest NFL analyst, Greg Cosell of NFL Films. Greg, your longtime colleague and my dear friend Steve Sable loved to tell a story, a great narrative. This Super Bowl is the Steve Sable Invitational. Best offense in football against the best defense. Two of a handful of the three or four best quarterbacks. First time two black signal callers starting the Super Bowl. Who's Mrs. Kelsey cheering for? Son Jason, the Eagles All-Pro Center, or son Travis, the Chiefs All-Pro tight end, and Andy Reid coaching against his old team? It doesn't get any better than that. Well, the one thing that can't happen because it's the Super Bowl, Alex, it can't be a tie. Maybe it was a regular season game, so he'd be pulling for a tie. Uh, but obviously that can't happen in the Super Bowl. What are you looking for? Oh, there's so many. This game, you know, I know I have to pick a score at the end of this or, or pick a winner, and I've been asked that all week already, and it's only Wednesday. Um, and I'm really struggling with this, guys, because there's so many variables in this game, tactical variables, that I'm, I, I just, you know, I, I mean, I can get a handle on tactically, but I just don't know how it's going to play out. Um, you know, one of the things about the Chiefs, because, you know, obviously Mahomes is magical, um, they've become a team that plays with – multiple tight ends, two, three tight ends on 40, 45% of their offensive snaps. And I bet a lot of people aren't aware of that because they think of, you know, Mahomes, high powered offense, throw the ball around, but they play with tight ends because their tight ends are really receivers more than true tight ends. So I'm really anxious to see how the Eagles match up to that because that's, you got to, you, you have to have a plan for that because of where Kelsey lines up. Um, you know, he, he doesn't line up like a, a traditional tight end where he's attached to the offensive tackle. Right. Well, you, you, you mentioned Patrick Mahomes, the great Patrick Mahomes. You know, we haven't seen this much attention to an ankle since Marilyn Monroe. 
I mean, he he played with great grit and courage against the Bengals, but he wasn't 100. percent Do you have any sense of how close he'll be on Sunday? Because and they have to protect him. That Eagles linebacker Hassan Reddick knocked out two 49er quarterbacks. Yeah, he'll be better. He won't be 100. percent You know, high ankle sprains. Obviously, he's getting the best treatment possible. You know, for normal people. I remember back in the Stone Age when I had high ankle sprains. You know, guys playing basketball in college. You know, they took six, eight weeks now he's getting uh, you know great great treatment so he'll be better um and i think he'll be able to move around if need be but the point you brought up is a great one because i think one of the things i think they'll do early in the game is get the ball out of his hands quick whether it's you know uh quick game throws, RPOs, they'll try to develop a rhythm in their pass game so that the ball can come out quick. Now, obviously all that changes when it becomes third and nine, and there's always third and longs in every game, but I think they'll try to establish an early rhythm with their pass game. And I think they're going to try to run the ball a little bit as well. You know, I think they're going to try to attack that Eagles five-man defensive front with the run game, particularly the outside zone run game. You, you know, the Eagles quarterback, Jalen Hurts, his story is, is amazing, is as, as amazing as Mahomes. Only a second-round draft choice. He has transformed that team in two years. I, I think this is right, Greg. He was a champion weightlifter. I'm sure he's yeah. the strongest quarterback in the NFL. But this is the biggest stage for this young kid. What are you expecting? Yeah, well, you know, people forget, which is why the story is even more remarkable, Al, that he was actually benched at Alabama because he couldn't throw very well. Um, right. And then people probably forget that. But really, this is Hurts offense. It runs through him because of the factor in the run game. Uh, it's it's really hard to to explain because people would probably need to see it, you know, which I do when I do my matchup show. But everything really runs through him because of the run game factor. So it's really, really hard to defend. They line up with him in the shotgun on almost every snap. And there's literally four or five plays that can happen on any play just because he's in the gun. Now, they may just call one play. It could be, hey, we're going to hand it off. And that's the play call. But the thing is, the defense doesn't know that. And there's so many plays that could emanate just from him being in the gun. And it makes it so difficult to defend because of the, of the running factor. James. So, Greg, I, you know, like a sports fan, I read a lot of commentary. And I read something that struck me, and it's something I read I wanted to ask you about. What struck me is it's pretty insightful that the key early in the game is going to be can the Philadelphia the front four get pressure on Mahomes without the blitz, that Mahomes is particularly good dealing with a blitz. Yeah. Does that make sense to you that, that they're going to have to get – Non-blitz, he don't, they can't give him that much time. Well, the Eagles are an interesting defense, James, because uh, they play a lot of five-man defensive fronts because, you know, Reddick is really an outside-edge pass rusher. He's not a true linebacker, and same with Josh Sweat. So they play with a five-man defensive front a good percentage of the time. Um, and they're not a heavy blitz team because a lot of times they'll rush those five defensive linemen, which some people will say is a blitz, but it's really not when it's five defensive linemen. So, you know, that gets back to what I, I said a moment ago in how the Chiefs choose to attack that. Will the Chiefs come out and throw early and try to get the ball out of Mahomes' hands quick and to establish some rhythm? Will they try to run the ball? Because obviously you don't want to get into third and long because where the Eagles have a big-time advantage, James, is on the edge. If it's third and long, Reddick and Sweat are, are a matchup problem for the two tackles for the Chiefs. So that, that, that's a big factor in this game. 
So if you can bet during the game and it's fourth and one, the Eagles have fourth and one, bet they're going to make it. Between, well, bet, between bet, Kelsey bet, and Hurts, they're almost sneak. guaranteed fourth and one team. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to call a quarterback sneak, too, because they, yeah. they do that time and they make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, every time they're going to call. I was like, Hurts played at Oklahoma, and we, we played LSU. We'd be in LSU. We played them in December 2019. We're going to beat them 80 to four if we wanted to. And I was just sort of colored by his time in Oklahoma and, and did not realize how, how, how good he was. So I apologize to, to Jalen Hurts. Because, <laughs> yeah, right. He had to leave Alabama, but it was you know, just, just like Joe Burrow had to leave Ohio State. <laughs> well, there were like 40 players picked ahead of him in the draft, too. Well, yeah. you know, funny, I can tell you for a fact, guys because I'm, uh, I know the organization well in Philadelphia because I'm right outside of Philadelphia at NFL Films, that um, when the Eagles drafted Hurts, he was drafted with the express purpose of being Carson Wentz's backup. He wasn't drafted for the purpose of being a starting quarterback because that was at the time when Lamar Jackson was you know, doing all those Lamar Jackson things with the Ravens' offense, and the Eagles felt that they could incorporate some of that with Jalen Hurts as an adjunct to Carson Wentz. So, you know, this obviously turns out really well, but he was not drafted with the intent of being a starting quarterback. Well, you mentioned something. I'm going to go off script here just for a second. What's the situation with Lamar Jackson and the Ravens? It's a great question. You know, the way I'd answer that is this. And again, I'm not there. You know, I, I always struggle, James, to talk about process of teams because you have to be there to understand the process but there's no way that any offensive coordinator wakes up in the morning and says you know what we don't want big plays in the passing game no one says that they all want big plays in the passing game so the only thing i would say is you have to ask the question you know it's it's probably like in any field you know you're you're in politics you always have to ask the question and the next question to try to find the real answers why do they not have a lot of big plays in the pass game. Why do receivers not want to play there? I don't know the answer to that. I'm This is not a personal knock, and I don't do anything personal, but this is not a knock on Lamar Jackson. But there's no way any team's offensive coaches wake up and say, we don't want big plays in the passing game. So if you're not getting big plays in the passing game, you have to ask yourself why. Well, uh, go, go back to Al. If they figure that out, they're going to win the Super Bowl next year. That's a good football team. I mean, I watched them. You know, they never for a quarterback. I watched them play the the Bengals. I was obviously pulling for the Bengals, but that Baltimore's pretty damn good. But no, anyway, but no. the game at hand. And it's not like it's not as if Lamar can't throw the football, but it's just you know they played a certain way, and then you have to add, again the same why question: Why did they choose to play this way? Why did they choose to play? Think of it this way, James. You know, you're obviously a very smart, thoughtful guy. There's five eligible receivers on every single play. So why did they choose to play with one player, Picard, Patrick Ricard, who's essentially a guard, but he's really an eligible receiver, and they don't use him at all? So they're they're choosing to play with four eligible receivers when you can play with five. And it's just an interesting dynamic, and I'm curious to see how they move forward at this point. Yeah. Hey, Greg, talk about these two coaches on Sunday. Andy Reid, I, I think he's entering that pantheon of the all-time greats, the Lombardi, Shula, yep. Belichicks. While Nick Sirianni, who was actually fired by Andy Reid, I think, 10 years ago, is one tough, really engaging young guy who yep. inherited a 4-11-1 team and turned it around. 
Yeah, and and I, you know, I think they had a great, great understanding of Jalen Hurts and what he brings to the table, and and what he brings to the table as an overall player, the run game element, the the pass game element, and it's not just the coaches. I think, well, there's a couple of other people who I think need to be mentioned, Al, now that you, you want to talk about specific players and then people. I think Howie Roseman's done an unbelievable job assembling this roster. You can easily GM. You can easily make the point that the Eagles are the most talented football team in the NFL, you know, top to bottom. Um, now, uh, so they, they are really good. And the other, the other coach who I think needs to be mentioned, because this is not his first rodeo, is the defensive coordinator for the Chiefs, Steve Spagnuolo. You know, he's been a defensive coordinator that's won Super Bowls. Many might forget that he was the Giants defensive coordinator in 2007 when they beat the Patriots and held them, I believe, to 14 points that, in that Super Bowl game. And he will have a plan with, for dealing with Hurts. Now, we don't know if it'll be a successful plan, but he will have a specific plan. Um, I don't know what it is. He's a lot smarter than I am, so I don't know what what it'll be. But he's been, you know, he's been around the block. So you know, you're dealing with some really good coaches here as well. You, you know, we the other thing is the franchise themselves. We painfully learned in Washington that ownership really matters. Uh, but over uh, the last ten years, these two fran I mean, Chiefs have won like 106 games. The Eagles are one of the three or four best over a long period of time. You, you got to give a lot of credit to Jeffrey Lurie and the Hunts, don't you? Oh, for sure. I mean, if, when you talk, look, I know a lot of coaches through the years, and the first thing they'll, they'll say is it all starts at the top and how, how it filters down. You know, it's one thing to have a great coach, and you're 100% right. Andy Reid will be a Hall of Fame coach without question. He's at that level of coach. Um, but, you know, it all starts at the top. If you don't get the proper support, and, you know, football is a funny business. You know, owners have been very, very successful in whatever field that they've been in. But it's not the same. You know, sports are not the same as, you know, running a, you know, whatever other business you're in. And it's it's a whole different animal. And I you have to give Lurie, as you said, Jeffrey Lurie, a ton of credit, uh, Hunt, a ton of credit, Clark Hunt. I mean, these, these you know, they understand how to let the organization function the right way. What what sleeper or what surprise can you look for or might you look for on Sunday? Well, I think there's a couple of things that variables in this game when you get to the tactics of it. Number one, who's going to match up to Travis Kelsey when the Eagles play man to man? Um, and the corollary to that is will they bracket him or double team him in certain down and distance situations? Because other than obviously Mahomes, the Chiefs offense runs through Travis Kelsey. So you have to have a plan. You can't just play your normal defense, you know, when it's third and six. You just can't say, okay, we're just going to line up and play and see what happens. You have to have a plan. So I'm very curious to see what the D coordinator, John Gannon, does for, um, uh, you know, as far as matching up to Kelsey. Um, and then if you look at, uh, you know, the Eagles offense, um, you know, I think that a real sleeper player for them is their tight end. You could argue, yeah, Kelsey's the best tight end in the game. Dallas Goddard is probably a top three, four tight end in the game. He just doesn't have the numbers. He would have had big numbers if he didn't miss four or five games. Um, but I think he's a really, really important player here for the Eagles. So, you know, the tight ends to me are, are significant players in how the opposing defense deals with them. James? The, uh, you know, there's a thousand proposition prop bets. I mean, you, you know, no one's that be better than, than anybody else. Of course, we're going to ask you to pick, 
But, you know, the, the over-under in this game is 51. Where's your gut on that? You think they'll, you think they'll be over 51 or under 51? Well, I'm first going to say that I don't even know what a prop bet is. I, I've never bet James on a sporting event in my life, so I'm not one of those yeah. people. Know what that means but but if you're talking about over under 51 yeah. my, my immediate inclination would be over but we've seen super bowls where we thought they'd be really high scoring games that they were not so to me this game like i started with this game's really hard for me because there's so many factors and i'm not sure how they're going to play out but my sense is there'll be points scored in this game I mean, I don't think this is going to be a 2017 game, but hey, um, uh, I've been wrong before, right? I mean, I've gotten a few of these wrong, you know, and, and, and that's the way it goes. So people ask me about predicting election outcomes, and the great Peter Hart told me something earlier in my career. You're not here to predict elections. You're here to affect elections. Right. And I don't think that I, Bill Belichick has a better idea than I do on who's going to win the game. Then he knows 6,000 times more football. Oh, you know 6,000 more. Well, but that's the great thing about sports is that they, there's no guarantee. No, and and you know what? Belichick's obviously smarter than all of us when it comes to football, but he would give you 10, 12 variables that, that are right. the main variables in this game, and you're not exactly sure how those will play out. Um, right. That's why I'm struggling with this game because I, I think – so many factors, and I, I don't really know how they're going to play out. And, you know, could the Eagles score 35? They could. Could the Chiefs score 35 because Mahomes is magical? I mean, Mahomes, I'm not sure I've seen a quarterback with a better feel for spatial awareness and where people are on the field than Mahomes. Right. Well, you and Bill Belichick don't know who's going to win the game. I just had a guy at the end of the bar in New Orleans. He has definite opinions on who's going to win the game. <laughs> well, we're not going to let him off, James. We're not going to let him off. I mean, he is now the last year. You're one and one in the last two years. So <clears throat> this is the tiebreaker, Greg. I know oh, you boy. don't like to do it. And we, we had all the caveats. But Sunday night, what's the scoreboard going to look like? So if I get this wrong, am I done, Al? Is he going to move on to this guy? Oh, you will or never be done. We'll be <laughs> wrong about Bill Belichick. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm reducing this to simplest terms, and I don't like to do that because of the kind of work I do, but I think the Eagles are a better team, but then I feel like you have the Mahomes factor. So that's what I'm really struggling with. So, all right, here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say that the Eagles are going to win this game 31-27. Wow. Okay. And I'll tell you this, Greg, first of all, you got a lot of guts to, 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 to go out on the limb like that. Uh, and we're going to have you back no matter what Steve Sable, I think missed, missed seven out of eight. So, so, you know, that's the, that's yeah. the business. Uh, I, I can't remember a Super Bowl that I look forward to as much as this one. It just yeah, I'm really all the elements. I'm really excited about it. I'm glad it's outside. I'm glad the weather's going to be beautiful. I just got to Phoenix. You know, I just got to my hotel room. So I'm in Phoenix. The weather's beautiful. It's supposed to be beautiful all weekend. Um, I'm really looking for, you know, maybe, a, maybe I'm old school, but, you know, I really like the outdoor Super Bowls because I still get a little teary-eyed when the, with the flyovers, that, you know, guys. That, there's something about those flyovers that always get to me. So my favorite thing in Super Bowl, Greg, is having you on the podcast every, every year. <laughs> no, Honestly. Too. Honestly, this year in Vegas, then it's in New Orleans, so we'll have to get together. So I, uh, I don't think anybody. I have a Super Bowl record. I think no one else has. I attended Super Bowl one. 
I was in a Super Bowl Coca-Cola ad and yeah. I was co-chairman of a Super Bowl host committee. Really? So, yeah, I think I have a, a, a unique Super Bowl. <laughs> James, you were wonderful. You really are. I've known you, but James, you are no Greg Cassell. I don't uh, try to be. I don't try to be. I don't know, Al, you may not be saying that, you know, this game. We'll see how it plays out. <laughs> well, yeah, all right. And, I, you know, Greg, I'm glad that uh, Steve is now in the, in the Canton Hall of Fame. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. You, you will be there one day. So uh, thank you. <laughs> Have Thank a great you. couple days and a great game, Greg. All right, guys. Thank you, man. We love having you on the show. On the show. Thank you. Hey, our next guest, James, is Brandon Presley, a strong and very effective consumer advocate on the Mississippi Public Service Commission. He's running for governor of Mississippi as a Democrat. Now, we're so pleased to have you join us, Brandon. Mississippi is Republican red, deep red. Haven't voted for a Democratic governor, senator, or president in this century. You've got a daunting challenge, don't you? Well, you know, I don't want to be the uh, least bit not looking at the challenges are there, but we got a heck of a lot of opportunities. Some things not only relate to the unpopularity of, the, of Tate Reeves, but also to many of the changes in the playbook in the state regarding how governor's elected. So I think we've got a heck of a good chance to kind of catch lightning in a bottle here. And <clears throat> Mississippians are ticked off about the direction the state's going in. Uh, we've got a, both private and public polling that shows 58% of the folks in Mississippi, 58% to 30, 58 to 30, want somebody new in the governor's office. And I think we're going to offer, I know I'm going to offer a vision and a uh, and really a fighting spirit as a governor that gets things done. And in contrast to a governor that voters don't believe has any backbones, not stood up to get things done and um, has made a mess of state government. You know, I started to read Mississippi Today, which is a really new, terrific digital nonprofit. And corruption seems to be the dominant industry in the state where politicians have taken welfare money intended for the poor and donating out to Republican supporters, $5 million for a volleyball court. I mean, it's just awful. Well, I mean, $5 million to a volleyball court and uh, $1.2 million to Tate Reeves' personal trainer. You had uh, money given for speeches to famous folks that never ended up showing uh, showing their face to give the speeches. And so it's just been a mess. I mean, they took TANF dollars, temporary assistance for needy families, dollars that should have been targeted to struggling families who having trouble paying their power bill or getting things that they needed. These are folks that are working, doing the best they can, and, and maybe had a need that the state could have helped them meet as they're trying to dig themselves out of an economic hole. They took $77 million of, of money aimed at struggling families and paid for stuff, just like you said, Al, that were volleyball courts and personal trainers, and it just became a slush fund. And, you know, uh, folks need to tune in and be sure to watch because we're just now learning how bad and deep and possibly illegal all these shenanigans have been. You know, Governor Reeves says, yeah, this stuff is bad, but it all is the fault of my predecessor, uh, Phil, Phil Bryant. You know, it doesn't, wasn't me. 
Yeah, well, he's got a PhD in blaming everybody else for other things. He was lieutenant governor during that time. And so whether it's this, whether it's the uh, threat of 38 hospitals closing down in the state because we've been so crazy that we wouldn't accept federal funds for health care. Uh, he's, you know, he's like I said, he's got a Ph.D. in blaming other people for for problems. Uh, the way I look at it is instead of running the uh, running your mouth, run the state. You know, we've got things that need to be fixed. And you look at not only the welfare scandal, uh, but things that are just state government in and of itself here uh, is is bought and paid for in so many ways. And so and, and nobody is more emblematic of that than Tate Reeves. I mean, he brags about the amount of money he's got in his campaign account. And, you know, so much of that are, it's, it's come, I believe, in fundraising uh, in ways in which it's hurt the state and what kind of promises have been given. And uh, he's just, he's not a he's not a leader with a strong backbone, with a sense of gut that's willing to go out and take on people in his, uh, he's in his own party or the other party uh, because I think he's just beholden to special interest and his entire career has proved that. James. So uh, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to play the audio of your response to the state of the state. If it doesn't work, well, it doesn't work, but it, it, it's, it's worth a try. So I'm going to try. Good evening. I'm Brandon Presley. And as you might be able to tell, I'm speaking to you this evening inside a closed down emergency room in a shutdown hospital. But before I tell you why I'm standing here tonight, I want to tell you a little bit about where I'm from and who I am. I grew up in North Mississippi in a small town called Nettleton. It's not a one-stoplight town. It's a no-stoplight town. It's a little dot on the map, and like many towns in Mississippi, it's the kind of place that Tate Reeves probably doesn't know exists and doesn't care about. When I was growing up in Nettleton, my mama worked at the local garment factory before it shut down. Then she became a preschool teacher at the local church just up the street. She raised me, my brother, and sister in the house that I still live in today. Back then, you could see straight through the floor down into the dirt. But with my mama's trust in God, we never felt as poor as we really were. My daddy was an alcoholic who never made it to recovery. And on my first day of the third grade, he was murdered in cold blood. My life, like many of yours, has had its share of tragedies. But with that faith in God that my mama taught me, I've been able to push through bad times just like so many of you who are watching tonight. I've been there, and so I know how you feel as you struggle to pay the bills, get the groceries, and just hope that maybe you can make it to the next paycheck. But thanks to the values that I learned in that old house, I did push through. I went to college. I ended up being the mayor of Nettleton to fight for my neighbors and the folks who helped me become who I am today. We got Nettleton moving again. We cut taxes twice and balanced the budget. Since then, I've served on the Public Service Commission to fight for families and against special interests who too often rule the roost in state government. We opened up closed-door meetings where the public was shut out, and we brought transparency to our state agency. I voted against boondoggles like the Kemper Power Plant and saved taxpayers over $6 billion. Many times, I had to stand alone. It takes guts and backbone to stand by yourself when lobbyists and the folks with big campaign checks oppose you. That's called leadership. We don't have it with Tate Reeves, and that's exactly why I'm running for governor. But tonight isn't about me and my story. It's about you and your story, your family's story, and your community's story. It's about the Mississippi that we want to build together. So I ask you, 
Do we want to keep going down the same old path that got us here? Or do we want to start winning again? Tonight, I listened to Governor Reeves' State of the State address. I watched his leadership over the years, and I know and see what you know and see. Mississippi is full of good people, but we're led by horrible politicians, and it's time for that to change. The reality is that under Tate Reeves' leadership, we're moving in the wrong direction. Nothing makes that clearer than where I'm standing tonight. I'm at what once was the Pioneer Community Hospital in Newton. It used to employ over 200 people. Now it's shut down for good. No doctors roaming these halls. No nurses tending to patients. No ambulances outside. No cars in the parking lot. Right now, there are 38 more rural hospitals just like the one I'm standing in, and they're on the brink of shutting their doors. If hospitals continue to close, the impact will be catastrophic. Jobs lost and health care for thousands gutted. Every time we close a rural hospital, folks have to drive farther and farther to see a doctor. And the true sad fact is that some will die. This is the reality that Tate Reeves has chosen to put us in. Make no mistake, he has made this choice. We have a solution. By extending Medicaid to the working people of our state, we can keep hospitals across Mississippi from experiencing the same fate as this one. All Tate Reeves has to do is lift his hand, take an ink pen, and sign on a line. Instead, he lacks the backbone, and he will sit on his hands while people lose their jobs, some lose their lives, and our hospitals close. When Tate Reeves finally wakes up and asks why hospitals in Mississippi are closing, he should look in the mirror. And this hospital is just one example of how Tate Reeves and his policies are hurting our families. Mississippi is at the bottom of the nation for economic growth. We're one of only three states that have lost population, and the numbers recently released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics show zero job growth in Mississippi. We're one of only seven states in this country that tax groceries. In the Mississippi Delta, there's only one pediatrician for every 4,000 kids. It's no surprise that we lead the nation in the deaths of children under the age of one. How is that pro-life? What does all that tell you? That Tate Reeves is only pro-life until you're born and then he's done caring about you. While he brags about budget surpluses, family budgets are running out. And while you are careful with your own money, he's throwing your tax dollars away. He's been caught in the middle of the largest public corruption scandal in our state's history. $77 million of taxpayer money that should have gone to working families that are struggling, instead went to fund things like a volleyball court, a volleyball court, and paid for speeches by famous people that were never even given. Some was even given to Tate Reeves' own personal trainer. And you should tune in because we're only just now learning how bad and how deep and possibly illegal all of this activity was. But I'm done talking about Tate Reeves. I want to listen to you. I want to fight for you. Together, we can build a Mississippi that focuses on the future, not the past. We can build an economy that works for everybody. And it all starts in Jackson next year with a strong ethics package that roots out corruption and ensures that our politicians are serving us rather than being sold off to the highest bidder. It's time to send a signal to the special interest that the party is over 
and their day of complete control of our state has come to an end. It continues by funding rural hospitals and police officers, not stealing from them. Yes, we should fund the police, increase health care, and invest in education. Together, we're going to end this insane tax on groceries. We're going to make sure folks from Walnut on the Tennessee line to Waveland on the Gulf Coast can walk with pride because they have a job and they have hope for their children's future. Mississippi, I love you. If you need me, you know where to find me. It won't be under the chandeliers tinkling glasses with the rich and powerful. It'll be with you. I'll be on your side. The holes in the floor have been fixed in that old house that I grew up in. But the values that my mama taught me and the love that made it a home are still there. Now, I don't care who you voted for or what political party you're in. I know that we're neighbors and we look out for each other. May God bless you and may God bless the great state of Mississippi. So, Brandon, where can people send a check? <laughs> www.brandon, B-R-A-N-D-O-N, Presley, P-R-E-S-L-E-Y.com, brandonpresley.com. Presley spelt just like my cousin Elvis, P-R-E-S-L-E-Y. <laughs> so uh, a couple more questions here. Give us the, when you have a governor and you make uh, extend Medicaid, uh, uh, give us the impact that's going to have on Mississippi's, Mississippians' lives. Well, first thing is, it, number one, it's going to save lives. I mean, we know right now, James, I come from a little town of 2,000 people, as I say there, and and I've been on the dirt and dusty roads of rural Mississippi the whole 16 years I've been on the Public Service Commission, and we know there are folks that cannot access health care. We've got emergency rooms that have shut down, so we know it's going to save people's lives. So, uh, Brandon, I guess I got one more question. So Al and I famously uh, have kicked up. We married better than ourselves, Judy and Mary. <laughs> I think the same thing can be said about you. Uh, tell us, uh, I think your, your wife is kind of part of Mississippi political royalty, and she's just a, a, a terrific person. I think she's going to be a big, big asset in your campaign. So tell us a, a, a little bit about your wife. I think I'll... Yeah, so it's my wife-to-be. We're getting married June the 3rd here in the, this tiny little town of Nettleton. Uh, she's Caitlin Mabus. She, uh, she's a cousin to former Governor Ray Mabus, who, of course, was governor here from 87 to 91, and then went on to be ambassador to Saudi Arabia and, um, and Secretary of the Navy. She's a heck of a lot better politician than I am. And, <laughs> and uh, you helped make her birthday good, James, by letting us drop by to see you back in December. Well, I would do, uh, you know, I want to do a fundraiser for you. And, you know, right out, you said from, to Waveland, you know, Bay St. Louis is adjacent to Waveland. So uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I have to somebody who knows exactly where Waveland, but between the, the, the Presleys and the Mavises, I, I think we got some in, inside connections in Mississippi here. But uh, anyway, uh, back to you, Al. You know, I just want to come back. I hate to do this because your wife is probably the most interesting story here, but I want to come back to some of the healthcare stuff. You talked about the hospitals, but the healthcare in Mississippi, you have the highest number of uninsured uh, uh, people in the country, the worst outcomes, according to most of the data. And yet your governor says that if you did that Medicaid expansion would be socialism like Obamacare. Well, I mean, it's funny to me, they don't call 
uh, highway funding socialism. They don't right. call if, if if the their pet projects get funded, they don't call those socialism. Uh, and and he turned back millions of dollars on rental assistance and others. And I said last week, I think the only reason we turned that money back was it couldn't be stolen for stuff like volleyball courts and personal trainers. And so, you know, that stuff. The average Mississippian doesn't believe that hogwash. The fact is this: if I went to any rural community or any city in our state. And I said, I'll give you a dollar if you'll give me back $9. If I give you one buck, you give me $9, we'd, we'd make that trade all day long. And essentially, that's what we're looking at on federal funding for extending Medicaid. You know, we put up a dollar, invest in our people's lives, health care, and create health care jobs to get $9 back from the federal government. It doesn't make any sense. Look, the former chancellor of the University of Mississippi came out just last week and said that Tate Reeves told him privately that he knew that expanding Medicaid was the right thing to do, but he couldn't do it for political reasons in his political career. And it just fits the entire narrative. When it comes down to doing the right thing for people in Mississippi, working folks, folks that got up this morning, got a sausage biscuit and tried to make it to an upholstery plant in Tupelo, when it comes between himself and those folks, he's going to always choose himself. He's got a perfect attendance record on that position. And so it, it makes no sense when we look at, as I said, 38 hospitals that are on ventilators themselves. They're barely making it. And if you could have a secret vote in the legislature, uh, Medicaid expansion would pass almost overwhelmingly. That's the bottom line of it. But folks don't have the political guts to stand up and say, this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. You know, y'all saw the vote in South Dakota, no liberal bastion in South Dakota that voted to expand Medicaid. It, it can be done in Mississippi, but we've got to have somebody leading the state's got guts, uh, backbone and willing to make the case to the public and, and lay the facts out there rather than hide behind these little political silly slogans that they use. Uh, that's not doing anybody any good. Well, as well as South Dakota, all those socialists in Idaho and Oklahoma voted yeah. uh voted strongly for medicaid expansion yeah i mean it's you know and the, the thing about this crowd is they're 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 out of message they're out of gas and hopefully in november they're going to be out of office these these same old things they throw around socialism or uh whatever is the label of the day it's just to hide behind the fact that they can't get anything done you got a governor that's in office today with a house and a senate that are majority republican house and and senate and uh, still hadn't been able to get any landmark type legislation done in the state. And so it's as indicative against uh, uh, against his leadership style as anything. I think I'd have a lot better chance to get along with this legislature than he does. Final question before turning back to James. Uh, what the black vote is about, what, 30, 35 percent? Should be 38 and a half, but it's not. Yeah. That's the population. Yeah. But what's the vote? Yeah, in, on a given election day in an average 34 to 35%, we feel confident we can edge that number up higher than that. And uh, our polling numbers show, for instance, uh, Al, that, that the intensity among African-American voters in the state against Tate Reeves is much higher than uh, previous uh, Republican governors. And so he, he's ticked off folks from Jackson State University to uh, his being as much a part of the problem in the city of Jackson on the water crisis as anything he's done to try to solve it. So um, those those numbers are there. Our job is to take advantage of the fact that for the first time in 133 years, and this is lost on every soul in the media, 
for the first time in 133 years in the state of Mississippi this year, we will conduct a governor's election under a set of rules that are different. So I was mentioning earlier, prior to this election cycle, if you're a candidate for governor, you had to get 50% plus one vote of the popular vote and carry 62 of the 122 House districts to meet the two requirements to be governor. Now, that provision was put in the Constitution in 1890 to disenfranchise black voters, and it was made clear with uh, atrocious language in 1890 as to why the legislature did that. The, the, that has been changed. The voters changed that by 74, 75%. And now, to be elected in Mississippi, you get a majority of the voter, there's a runoff. Mechanically and logistically, a Democrat candidate has not been able to focus on turnout in the ways that you should because you had to not only uh, have get 50.1%, but you had to go to other districts and try to win them by 50 votes to beat both of those provisions. So it's we got a brand new playbook, and that that changes things dramatically here. Great, James. So, so uh, you know, probably in, in following up Al's question, the most famous political Mississippian right now might be Benny Thompson. Yeah. And uh, what's Benny Thompson's stand on your campaign? Is he going to help? Or is he is he all in? Or give our viewers some sense of where you, how you and Benny stand with each other. Well, let me say my relationship with Congressman Thompson goes back from the day I got elected to state office, prior to the day I got elected to state <laughs> office. And we've enjoyed a, a good working relationship together. And he endorsed me an hour after I filed the papers to run. Uh, first candidate, first Democrat, he's endorsed for governor. Um, and he did that an hour after I filed the papers. And he he's not only been somebody that is um, – that, that I've been friends with, but somebody who came out first day and put their foot on base and said, we got a chance to win and I'm going to be in this campaign. And, and I, I'm deeply grateful for that. Yeah. You know, we were, uh, at, uh, at about a year ago, last March show, I was in Jackson, you were there at the friend museums, uh, honoring, you know, maybe the, one of the great Mississippians that ever lived, Governor William Winter. President Clinton was there and Benny, Benny was there, but I thought Haley Barber did an admirable job of putting into context. And those two museums in Jackson, by the way, are, are really good. The, the front of the Museum of Mississippi History and the Civil Rights Museum, I, I, I concur, those are really good museums. Oh, they're, they're some of the pride of the state. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I've tried to help just privately contribute to getting school children down there to see them. It is, I would put those, they're Smithsonian-style museums, let me say that. They're to, they're to the level of um, of not only exhibits but learning that uh, really shows the best of our state and the worst of our state. I mean, the time in which during civil rights and others, but it does it in uh, those museums portray our history in an honest way in which um, Mississippians, I'm not saying you're proud of some of the content in there, but of the effort to educate where we've came, where we've come from and where we're trying to go. And, and those museums are just excellent. Yeah, boy, I tell you, when anybody's taking a vacation down south, uh, you should you should really put the Jackson on, on your list because that they're they're, they're, too, they're magnificent both of them and the Civil Rights Museum particularly if you want to see what things were like during Freedom Summer and others and really experience that Mississippi Civil Rights Museum's a place to go. I'm gonna close with the final thought. You know the difference between the chicken and the hog and a ham and egg breakfast is the chicken participates, the hog is committed. I'm your hog between nine election day. You got a hog. <laughs> I, I need all the hogs I can get. And we say it H-A-W-G, not H-O-G up here, so I'm with you. All right. I'll tell you one thing. One of my you know oldest friends in the in in, in the in, in my business, 
And one of the best I've ever known is Curtis Wilkie down at Ole Miss. And Curtis Wilkie oh. says, you're the real deal. And well, if listen, Curtis Wilkie first, says that, I know it's right, Brandon. Hey, let me tell you, let me tell you this, Al. So Caitlin and I carried Curtis to dinner about six, eight months ago, and they sat down, and it wasn't 30 minutes into the conversation that we figured out, heck, they were kin. He was married to her aunt's first. I, I can't get the relation right. And I said, <laughs> typical Mississippi story. We go to dinner and sit down with Curtis and find out that he's Caitlin's uh, cousin-in-law. So that uh, Curtis is a great guy. Brandon, he told me that, you know, he'd been teaching at Ole Miss, and he said, he said, last year I taught a course that I flunked when I went there. I said, <laughs> man. But I'll tell you, if you had Curtis Wilkie, you learned that. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. Th thank you all for the opportunity. One, one more time, how to get the money to you. Yeah, the way to help us uh, get this thing kicked off right, go to www.brandonpresley.com, B-R-A-N-D-O-N-P-R-E-S-L-E-Y.com, and hit the donate button. We're uh, We're glad to have you help. All right. <laughs> That's not spoken like an old campaign manager. Tell the goddamn money. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Thank y'all. Okay. Thank you. All right, James, now for the outrage of the leaks. As promised last week, I'm going to call out the timid 20, those House Republican members from competitive districts who could be or should be the balance of power in the House, you know, if they had any guts. They all voted lockstep to oust Congresswoman Omar from her committee post. The excuse was she's anti-Israel. A few years ago, she made a seemingly anti-Semitic remark. Speaker Pelosi demanded she apologize, which she did. Republican members before I mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, have never apologized or walked back their trafficking with anti-Semites or white racists or their threats to kill other members. So let's look at the members who think it's fine for Green and Gosar to be on a, com on a committee, but not Omar. I also want to note the three Republican members, Ken Buck of Colorado, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, and Indiana's Victoria Sparks, who indicated they'd vote against this, but under pressure, they failed they just folded like a cheap tent. The timid 20 who voted to unseat Omar while supporting the seating of bigots Gosar and Green are from Michigan, John James, Iowa, Zach Nunn, and the infamous Lauren Boebert of, of Colorado. Californians includes David Valvado, Mike Garcia, Young Kim, Michelle Steele, John Duarte. From New York, Brandon Williams, Nick LaLota, Anthony Desposito, Mike Lawler, and Mark Molinaro, Dave Schweiker, and Juan Siscomani from Arizona, Pennsylvania's Brian Fitzpatrick, Tom Keenan, New Jersey, Jen Kiggins of Virginia, Nebraska's Don Bacon, and Laurie Chavez de Reamer of Oregon. If any of these are your representatives, why don't you let them know what you think of this hypocrisy? Yeah, that's very good, and it's very good to name names. Don Bacon, in that second district in Nebraska, which is very much of a sling district, he was considered to be, you know, the eternal search for the good principled Republican. He also announced that he would support uh, not extending the debt limit. So, so much for that nonsense. And, and of course, every one of those will fall in the line until the political plane becomes so enormous that they're forced to do something else. The, the, the truth of the matter is, 
I can't tell you there are not some good Republican office holders out there, but it, it, it wouldn't take both hands to name them. It really wouldn't. And most of them, you know, like Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker, are not in office anymore. So they, they're just, we can continue our search for the ethical, principled, conservative Republican, but it, 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 we're down to very few people, I promise you. I, I, the Mount Rage is, there was a, Utah State played a basketball game at Colorado State in Fort Collins. Okay, even I, who like follow sports, are probably not that into the Utah State-Colorado State game. And Utah State had a, a, a player, unfortunately, his name escapes me, who is Ukrainian. And a segment of the Colorado State students were yelling, Russia, Russia, Russia at him. To Colorado State University's credit, they, they were swift with an apology and said that that, that didn't fair value. The coach came out and everybody. But this is indicative of what modern America has become, where you have college students pulling for Russia. And you listen to this, and let me tell you, I listen to a lot of, I have that satellite uh, Sirius, I guess you call it. I think it's like channel 124, the Patriot channel. You, you got to listen to just how bad it is. You're stunned that the, the, the sort of space out there on, on the far right is, is stunning in its hatefulness and its lying. But that's just what it produces, college kids yelling rush at a Ukrainian basketball player. Well, boy, that, that, that's just sickening. It really is. And maybe some of them were trying to distract him from the free throw, but... Yeah, but there's another way to do that. You don't you know, distract you can, people like that, but... You know. you know, the one thing about the, you know, the Dukies down in Durham, uh, they're, they're, they are usually creative when they distract people. They are not, uh, they are not vicious and despicable the way those Colorado State students were. Okay. Hey, James, some of these great listener questions, I'm going to direct it personally to you. Debbie in Wilmington, Delaware said she's surprised to receive a text today from a DNC under your signature asking for a donation. She's a faithful listener, and she thought your advice has been to donate directly to candidates rather than to the DNC. Has you changed your mind? Where should Debbie send her money, James? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. If I, I, they send so much out in my name. Uh, I, I'll see. Uh, but Debbie, I'm sorry uh, to be confused. You can do it as you want, Bob. But I don't even remember authorizing the email. Maybe if Valley did an offer something, I'm not angry about it. But I've sent out, <clears throat> I'm told I'm one of the better direct solicitors in the party. So, I, but, but, but Debbie, uh, thanks for the question. And I'll find out the origins of how my name got on that email. <laughs> and you still think Debbie should give most of her donations to candidates? I, I would, I, I would, any uh, don't, prospective donor out there, particularly if you're going to be a, you know, $250 donor, I think the most efficient use of money is directly to the candidate in that okay. account because they, they just have more leeway of what they can do with it. I'm not saying you don't give money to the DNC or, or, or campaign committees or anything like that. I, I'm just saying for a, a small donor, I, I really favor directly to the candidate. Okay. That would be my advice, but I, I, 
yeah. you know, raise money for, for a lot of different things. But okay. I, I don't know. I just got out. I'll ask Allie. <laughs> Our next question is from Carolyn in Bella Vista. I think it's Bella Vista, Arkansas, although it could be Bella Vista, Arizona. It's AR. But anyway, I think that's Carolyn, Arizona. Uh, Carolyn is from Bella Vista. I guess she used ARK for Arkansas. Anyway, she says, how can we as citizens get an enforceable code of ethics for the Supreme Court? All other federal judges must meet published ethical standards, but the Supremes have exempted, exempted themselves with predictable results. Carolyn, you are right on. And I'll tell you who you ought to write to because he's really trying to do something about it. Sheldon Whitehouse. It is outrageous that they don't have a code of ethics. Uh, I think there, I mean, I, I, I will say there was a story about Jane Roberts, uh, you know, working for a law firm. I, I thought that was really a weak story, but certainly Jenny Thomas has, uh, has, has, I think violated anything that would be considered a good ethics bill. And they don't have to report some of this stuff and they've got incredibly important, powerful posts and we ought to know who they're talking to, how much money they're getting and everything else. So right on Carolyn. Yeah, they're they're a separate branch of government. So if they can pay, and look, they're cynical enough to pass it. They'll just say it's unconstitutional, it's undue influence. I, I didn't think the story about Roberts's wife was. I, I, I thought that was somewhat troubling. I mean, they don't have any about the stuff that you see. I would say compared to. You know, Alito telling people about the Hobby Lobby case and giving people access that give money. You know, it's it, it. Maybe it's not in that league, but they don't care. They really well, but don't. James, wait, 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 she was a. She, you know, she basically was helping people come out of government. You know, place placing them with law firms. I mean, and and yeah, the argument know, was, well, you that know, law firm has a case before the Supreme Court. Well, hell, every major law firm has a case well, before the Supreme I, I, again, Court. I mean, I thought if, it was if really. Chief, if you're a wife and a chief justice, it's better not to be working. You know, if you be a law professor, but I, again, if you 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 know, you get somebody mm. placed in a big law firm and you make a lot of money over the placement, and that law firm has a case before the Supreme Court. I don't. I, I think that somebody would say, "Well, Dame, that you carrying things a little to the extreme." Yeah, you are. But if you, you, you're the <laughs> spouse of the chief justice, there's just certain things you can't do. Well, I don't think that's, that's one come, of them, and certainly okay. it doesn't compare. Well, I mean, I don't. It, I don't it, think it, it doesn't. It doesn't compare to Jenny Thomas. That's for sure. It, 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 uh, again, because nothing compares to that. But you, you yeah, got to be much. careful where you, you just compare things and, and, and it doesn't. That, that, you know, certain things you give up to be in a higher position of that in government. You just well, do. I agree. But it doesn't matter. I mean, look, in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. Reputation is such in, 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 in the toilet now. It's just one more thing. Yeah. Hey, James, Caroline, in your town of New Orleans, says, what happened to Democrats in our state? What can I do as a progressive to help progressive causes? And how can we stop Landry from becoming governor? Boy, <laughs> I only think about that about 23, 23 and a half hours a day. Um, first of all, we're not, you know, we had the best governor, I think, of my lifetime in John Bell Edwards. Um, in let, let's see uh, how the field uh, plays out. Uh, there's some chance, I'm told, and it'd be very difficult for a Democrat to win. We, we understand that. We have a much better chance in Mississippi than we do in Louisiana, and an even better chance to hold a governorship in Kentucky. Remember, those are the three big governor races that are up in uh, 2023. Uh, I potentially 
the strongest Democrat would be Hillary Moore, the, the DA in East Baton Rouge Parish. But he's not decided whether he was going to run or not. And of course, he would have to, you know, you'd have to clear the Democratic field to get him in a runoff with Jeff Landry. But he would probably match up as well with, with Jeff Landry is a is a extremely ethically dubious guy with very extreme right wing views. Uh, that I think is he Attorney would, General James? Yes, yes. I, and I, I share uh, our friend from New Orleans' concern, but it, 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 it's something to think about, and it's actually something to worry about. Yeah. Um, George in St. Paul, Minnesota, says guns don't kill people; bullets do. Why don't <laughs> gun safety advocates focus on bullets? You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan really had an obsession with that, and had all kinds of uh, measures to, you know, make bullets harder to get. It's, it, you know, you're certainly right, George, but it ain't going to be any easier to crack down on bullets than it is assault weapons. Uh, it just is such a tough, it, it should be easy, but um, I, I like your idea. It ought to be part of any effort, but I'm, I'm dubious. Yeah. Chris Rock has a hilarious routine on bullets and it makes you laugh and you should tax bullets and, and make people shoot straight. The, the truth of the matter is, I, and I hate, to say this, it sounds pessimistic. It sounds fatalistic. I, I, there's so many guns and bullets in this country. I don't know if there's anything anybody can do about it. Yeah. I, really, I mean, it, 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 we remember, let me repeat, assault weapons were banned from 1994 to 2004. The country didn't fall apart. People hunted, people went to target practice, people joined gun clubs, and of course, we made the mistake of repealing or it, it sunsetted in 10 years because that was the only way to get the crime bill through. And, the, you know, if you, you think of all of the horrors of the Bush administration, the, the, you know, the jackass Iraq war, the, the financial meltdown we had in, in, in 2008. And right up there with them is letting the assault weapons ban expire. Right up yeah. there. I agree. Peter in Melbourne, Australia, says last week you talked about Trump possibly running for president as an independent if he failed to win the Republican nomination. Can you think of a rhino or independent who would be willing and able to take on Trump if he is the Republican nominee? Oh, I, I, you know, Val, I might defer to you on that, but I, I do think that Trump, he, he, doesn't care about the Republican Party, right? Yeah. That's the last thing that crosses his mind. And if they don't nominate him and he thinks he can hurt him by running as independent, he'll do it. He'll do it in a minute. Hey, look, I don't think they're going to nominate him. I think there's almost no chance or virtually no chance. If they should do it, I think there will be someone. I mean, this guy Evan McMullen ran against Mike Lee in Utah, ran a good race, maybe even Larry Hogan. But I think there are enough Republicans who say this is just, a, you know, this is despicable. So I think he'd have a, you know, there would be a candidate. But he's not going to be the nominee. Okay, James. Uh, Phil in Denver, Colorado says, do you feel that modern journalism is at a crisis? You bet it is, Phil. Local journalism is at a crisis. There are papers that are closing or downsizing all over the country. I don't worry about the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. But I worry about what's happening to communities. But I'll give you a good story. And I talked about it earlier. Mississippi Today. It's a model of what you can do. It's a nonprofit digital news site uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, and they are doing one hell of a job. 
uh, covering that state and some of the really bad things that are going on in that state. And I suppose some of the good things. So there's 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 hope when you see things like Mississippi today. But pretty, you know, the terrain is pretty bleak. Well, I, I defer to Al about all things journalism, but to the extent that I know about it, I 100 percent concur with his assessment. James, the final question, John in Chicago, Illinois. This is good. Why do the Democrats buy up TV advertising in the Super Bowl? They can brag about all the good things they've done and reach millions of viewers. And they can talk about the Republicans' attempts to uh, cut to for, go for a consumption tax and and uh, and sunset uh, Medicare and Social Security. I think that's a pretty good idea. Yeah, it I, I, I seems like. But they're, they're very expensive. And, you know, and I'd like to see what the analysis uh, is. Uh, I don't know how much of a political ad in the middle of the Super Bowl helps, I, but it's, it's, it's certainly something uh, worth exploring next year. I, 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 don't, I, w- I would not dismiss that idea right. as being out of hand or ridiculous. But, you, you know, there's a lot of research done on bang for the buck in the Super Bowl, and you'd have to judge that against, you know, running, I don't know, 50 ads somewhere else. But but I, yeah. I think it's a question that, that merits a further investigation. Okay, keep those questions coming in. They are so good. We're sorry we didn't get to some. We'll get to them next week. So thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate if you check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper and Hold On Bags in the show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.